Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. We are very complicated creatures, but if you boil it down, you know, I could basically write it out in one mathematical equation. Uh, it's the loss of information due to entropy. And that's the cause of death of everything from, I think, for, for us, but also for for planets and stars in the universe. I've been fighting with one arm tied behind my back. But what happens when I'm finally set free? What we do in life echoes in eternity. It's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, everyone would do it. The hard is what makes it great. Only love can truly save the world. This is my mission now, forever. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Better Podcast with Dr. Stephanie. I'm your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Today, I am so excited to bring you this podcast. I sat down to speak with Dr. David Sinclair, who is a professor in the Department of Genetics at Harvard Medical School. He is really best known for his work in understanding why we age and how to slow its effects. A little bit of background on David. He obtained his PhD in molecular uh, genetics at the University of South Wales in Sydney. And he's worked as a postdoc researcher at MIT, where he discovered, along with some of his colleagues, a cause of aging for yeast, as well as the role of sirtuins in epigenetic changes, uh, which is driven by uh, genomic instability. Uh, He's been at Harvard Medical School, uh, where he has been teaching aging biology and uh, translational medicine for the past 16 years. And that is what we talked about on our podcast today. We talked about sirtuins. Uh, which are protein-modifying enzymes that respond to changes in NAD levels, caloric restriction, and uh, a myriad of other uh, hormetic stressors. So when we sat down today, my primary objective was to talk about his new book, Lifespan. Uh, The book is called Lifespan, Why We Age and Why We Don't Have to. But I really wanted to deconstruct and dissect the conversation in terms and integrate a lot of his uh, research into that as well. So we talked about the differences between the genome and the epigenome. uh, And he has a really great analogy where he talks about the genome as, you know, this digital information that does not degrade over time, but it is the epigenetic information where it may be more akin to something like an analog that has the ability to, uh, to degrade with time. We talked about sirtuins, which are, as I mentioned, these proteins that can remove acetyl groups and, and um, that respond to stressors in the environment. So things like DNA damage and breaks. But we also talked about how we can activate them while not distracting them because the, the whole premise behind uh, David's work is that the more you distract these sirtuins uh, and they sort of have this dual role in the body, one is to sort of keep genes off, uh, which is part of the name. SIR is, stands for Silent Information Regulator. So it basically sits like a hen on top of, a, you know, of an egg, keeping it nice and warm and quiet. But when there is damage, so let's say there's you know, uh, a DNA break or there's some sort of stressor that the sirtuin um, perceives in the environment, it can leave its post to go and repair that. So we talked about sirtuins, we talked about his discoveries in yeast, and quite phenomenally, when we actually look at the sirtuin families, you know, he studied yeast quite extensively you know, a couple de- a decades ago. But yeast have five sirtuins. Humans only have two more. We have seven. And that, this ancient pathway, is conserved over, you know, you know very different life forms is incredible. And we parsed that with a dive into NAD, which is a potent substrate, our, uh, you know, fuel for uh, sirtuin activation. Uh, we talked about resveratrol, which his uh, lab very famously published a few uh, studies that discussed the idea that resveratrol is a longev- activates longevity pathways, AMP kinase, uh, sirtuin activation, etc. 
And then we kind of got into some of the precursors. So, you know, my question to him was like, can you just eat NAD? Can you just eat? Because, you know, he was saying between the ages of, you know, 20 and 50, our NAD levels decreased by about 50%. So we got into a discussion around these precursors, NR and NMN. And then we kind of went into the deeper layer of the epigenome where he and his, uh, his lab is now looking to see uh, and to prove that whether or not there is an existence of this backup copy of our genome. So the idea is that we are born with this original blueprint. There's a backup copy stored somewhere and can we access it? So we talked about the Horvath clock. We talked about um, methylation. We talked about how we can potentially express a phenotypically younger version of ourselves, even though we are chronologically older. So this is a little bit more of a technical uh, episode than once past, but I know that you guys can do it and get through it. I try to use as many analogies as I can, and the show notes are really going to help you out here. So we have linked out in the show notes papers that he's published, uh, areas, you know, if you want to find him on social, he's very active on social media as well. And he puts out a newsletter um, that is uh, incredibly useful and I, uh, I am also a member of it. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. David Sinclair. I am a huge fan of the BioOptimizer's Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health. The list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk. And my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apreski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. All right, David, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you here today. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to have you on the show because I don't think that there's anybody on the planet that has not been affected by aging. And what we are going to do today is we're really going to dissect and deconstruct uh, your book, Lifespan, around you know what we understand about aging and if you know, and talking about you know what we can do to slow it down, potentially reverse it, and uh, some future considerations as well. All right, sounds good. 
So I always, whenever I'm speaking to somebody for the first time, I am always intensely curious about your origin story. And that's, you know, maybe because I'm a huge comic book nerd, but maybe you can, um, you know, talk to me about your, where your curiosity around aging comes from, your observations around life, end of life, death. And I'd love for you to, you talk about uh, her in your book, but I'd love for you to speak about your grandmother, if you can as well, Vera. Uh, yeah. So I'm pretty normal. I went through my childhood realizing that uh, my parents and my grandparents would eventually die. And it sounds morbid. Uh, and what happens to most kids is they forget about it. Uh, we, as adults, we rarely think about mortality and losing people. It's just too painful. How could we get through the day if we're thinking mm -hmm. about it all the time? But I tend to get obsessed with things. And this is one of the things that um, I couldn't get out of my mind. Not so much that we're all going to die, that, that I still think is going to happen for the foreseeable future, but that no one was talking about it, let alone even asking the question, can we do something about it? And so there's, there's modern medicine, of course. Um, you know, you're, you're a doctor, Stephanie, um, so you understand this. But the, the approach has been to tackle diseases once they've occurred and without actually realizing the main driver of most diseases that kill people. Uh, which is aging itself. Mm -hmm. And we see it so often that we, we just are blinded to it. And so, since I was four, uh, I really have just been trying to figure out why we age, uh, how we can slow it down and prevent major diseases. Uh, and I wrote the book because there's a lot of really interesting technology and things people can do in their daily lives, I believe, to live significantly longer and healthier. Uh, but I also wanted to start the conversation because I felt no one was really saying the kinds of things that I was saying. That's very well said. And I'm excited because we're going to be going on what I like to call a geeky magic carpet ride together. So let's, uh, let's dive into it. Let's talk, you know, your, our understanding of aging very much in part by your work has really changed over time. We used to think it was, you know, this free radical damage, these genetic mutations, and, um, you know, the antioxidants were sort of the be all and end all. If I were to ask you, if I were to say, David, in one sentence, what, what do you think causes aging? What, if you, I know it's very complex to summarize that, but if you could say why we age, why would you say that we do that? Uh, well, so the most scientists you talk to uh, or you would talk to would say that there are about seven to nine causes of aging. And mm -hmm. we, about 10 years ago, we agreed as a, as a group that these were the causes um, and we put a flag in the ground and we felt like we'd reached Mount Everest and the field was finally in agreement. Uh, but as I've admitted to, uh, I do become obsessed with things and I keep asking the question, why? And I think that's actually good, a good thing for everybody to practice is to ask why at least five times in a row. And if you get to the answer, that, which is, I don't know, that's just the way it happens. That's not a good enough answer. Mm -hmm. And so I did that and we... we I asked that question about these hallmarks of aging, these seven to nine hallmarks. Uh, and my question was, well, why do they occur? And is there a unifying cause? Uh, and I, I'm proposing in my book that there is. And it, it's pretty new. It's ruffling some feathers. Um, but we've got 20 years of research to back it up and some new research that's going to be coming out in the next six to 12 months that's actually in the book. Um, and I think that the major driver of aging, put simply, is a loss of information. We are very complicated creatures, but if you boil it down, you know, I could basically write it out in one mathematical equation. Uh, it's the loss of information due to entropy. And that's the cause of death of everything from, I think, for, for us, but also for, for planets and stars in the universe. Uh, we really just don't manage to hang on to our youthful information. And just to end, you know, listeners, viewers may be also curious, what about, what type of information am I talking about? Uh, and I'm talking about not the genetic information. Uh, I'm talking about the, what we call the epigenetic information, the structures, the systems in the body that control which genes are on and off at any time of day. And I think that's what's lost over time. And that leads to diseases. And that is eventually what causes us to grow old. 
Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about the genome and the epigenome. And I really, what I love about your book, uh, Lifespan, is the way that you describe them and you you uh, make a comparison to, you know, CDs and, you know, CDs that get scratched over time. So maybe walk us through that, you know, that analog versus digital uh, paradigm that you talk about. Yeah, uh, so this has been evolving in my mind since about the early to mid-1990s when we first discovered in little yeast cells that the epigenome was important. And uh, so the, the, the simple way to think about genomic or genetic information versus epigenetic is that we all know DNA is a string of chemical letters, A, C, T, G, and that's a digital format. It's not binary, but it's, it's four letters, quaternary, and each letter can be a different position and we get those from our parents. Surprisingly, DNA is long lasting. You can get it out of fossils, you can get it out of uh, mummies. It lasts a long time. And I also, and my, my colleagues increasingly believe that the loss of genetic information is not a main driver of aging. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the controversial part because many scientists have built their careers on trying to prove that mutations cause aging. And we know that DNA damage is important. I'm not saying that it isn't. Anyone who's spent some time in the sun knows that it will uh, accelerate wrinkles. Right. But what I'm saying is that what's more important and in part driven by DNA damage is a loss of epigenetic information. So the epigenome, um, let me start with with a metaphor first, and then I'll talk about the molecules. So the the best metaphor uh, is, is that the genome is a piano, but with Instead of just a, a hundred or so keys, there's twenty thousand, um, and that piano is largely intact when we're old. But so what's going wrong? I believe is that the, the pianist is losing her ability to play beautiful music and hitting the wrong notes. And in other words, the genes are coming on in our cells that shouldn't be on. And so each cell plays a different concerto, and it's what determines the music of our lives. It determines whether a skin cell will stay a skin cell and a brain cell will stay a brain cell. But over time, the pianist eventually becomes such a terrible uh, noise, you want, you want to walk out of the, out of the performance. Now, there, there, if you go to the molecular side and you have a very bright audience, so I think it's, it's going to be fine, what's happening is that the DNA is spooled out into loops that are accessible to the cell, and there are also bundles of DNA as though you would uh, wind up a hose rail on the driveway. Mm, yep. And there are proteins that tell cells to open up the chromatin, we call it, the structure is called chromatin, or bundle it up. And some of those longevity genes that we worked on, have worked on for 20 years, are important for telling a cell how to bundle up genes that shouldn't be turned on. And so, for instance, a nerve cell shouldn't have a liver cell, shouldn't have the same genes on as a liver cell, and so you need to bundle those up. What we think over time is that those loops and those uh, bundles become messed up, in part because cells have to react to DNA damage and unwrap and repack the DNA thousands of times um, every month in our lives. And every day we're getting trillions of of spots of DNA damage in our bodies. So this is something we we really can't avoid. Um, And then one of the things that uh, we've realized in my lab is if you break a chromosome and cause the the cell to unpack these loops, well, these bundles, they don't repackage it very well. It's not perfect. And over time, you build up this, uh, what we call informational noise. Mm -hmm. And this is um, epigenetic noise, we also call it. And that, we think, is is causing aging. And an experiment that we've now posted online in in a manuscript that is under review still by my peers shows that you can create this this change in a mouse and it will get aging it will get older by 50% and it's not just that it looks old we can measure its age by measuring some structures in the cell the epigenome and it literally these mice are older by about 50% and so that uh, to me says that we're on to something pretty interesting here I think this is a perfect time to introduce sirtuin. So when we when we talk when in your book you talk about sort of these three layers of the epigenome, you know, maybe the most superficial layer might be these transcription factors. Let's talk about sirtuins and how uh, we can modify them, we can activate them, and then let's and then we can go into the you know sort of the deeper layers of the epigenome. Mm. So 
when we're talking about the when we're talking about the CD and you know and the scratches that it accrues over time, if you will, in your book you talk about the digital uh, information being like our genetic information, which is fairly well preserved over time, and the epigenome, which is the analog, which can be which is more susceptible to more susceptible to degrading. Let's define for the listener, you know, what a sirtuin is. Talk me through what you know about, you know, what your lab has discovered in large part, you know, the role of sirtuins, at least in yeast, and how that can extract to uh, humans as well. Right. So the, the sirtuins, uh, there are seven of them in the body, and they're, they're protective enzymes. They control a variety of functions in the body. They stop inflammation. They stop DNA damage or fix DNA damage. Mm-hmm. They control how obese we are, and we, we think they even control diseases like Alzheimer's and ultimately how healthy we are in old age. Think of them as the traffic cops. They, they respond to an emergency or a perceived adversity uh, emergency, and they send out the troops. In relation to the epigenome, uh, they, they're major regulators of those structures that I talked about, and they, they slow down the scratches on the CD if you keep them active. And, uh, and in other words, you can access your epigenetic information much, much longer in life, we think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in yeast cells, we discovered that actually uh, now 24 years ago. It's crazy to think it was that long ago, but what we discovered in yeast cells, and so a typical yeast cell will divide about 25 times. And we were curious, and I was at MIT in the lab of Lenny Garenti, Professor Lenny Garenti, and uh, I was trying to figure out why do yeast cells not live forever? I mean, it's a pretty simple cell. Why can't it just keep dividing and dividing? Um, and so what I figured out was that they have uh, breaks in their chromosomes. They have genetic instability. And that fit with everything we knew about DNA damage being involved in aging. But what was particularly interesting was that these sirtuin proteins, these enzymes that were stabilizing the epigenome and making sure cells retained their identity throughout life, uh, they were being distracted by this DNA damage and they were leaving their posts to go help repair the damage because they have these this dual role in the cell. Mm-hmm. And then they would have to find their way back to where they came from. And they didn't always do that. And the more DNA damage that accumulated, the more distracted they got and the more the cell lost its identity. Eventually, those cells became sterile. Um, and because they, they didn't know what, what sex they were, they weren't sure if they were male or female. And uh, so that's and how a very can you sp- reproduce, right? If you don't know if you're male or female, how can you? Yeah, reproduce? yeah. So they stop yeah, dividing. Yeah. They don't reproduce. Mm-hmm. And we think, um, and I, I wrote in my book that this is a, an ancient survival mechanism to stop the cells dividing when there's a broken chromosome. Uh, and so, one of the the questions I get from young scientists typically is, well, why doesn't the cell just give another protein that role? Why does sirtuins have to play that dual role? Isn't that ultimately going to cause aging? Uh, And the answer is, well, first of all, we only live as long as we need to. So evolution is not likely going to make us live forever. Um, But it's a perfect way when you're young to be able to coordinate the, the cell cycle and the arrest of that when there's trouble and the repair of DNA. So we call this uh, antagonistic pleiotropy. It's just a complex way of saying, Things that are healthy for you when you're young come back to bite you when you're old. Mm-hmm. And evolution doesn't care. Natural selection doesn't care. Once you've reproduced, then we're all good. And typically, our ancestors got by by having children in their teens and 20s. And by the time they were 40, their bodies were basically uh, expendable. And most people didn't make it beyond that anyway due to right. famine, diseases, and war. Mm-hmm. So if we could if we could sort of summarize the two main roles of sirtuins one you know the sirtuin silent information regulator it's supposed to sort of sit like a hen on an egg and just like keep some gene like keep the gene silent and then when there is is it is it stress in the environment or something yeah sorry to cut you off it's a major emergency so a little bit of stress is good as we we will discuss today Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's these major catastrophes that cell has to change what it's doing, open up its DNA, change the what we call the gene expression pretty fast. Yeah. But then they, they have to reset the system and go back to being a non-freaked out cell. Right. And it's this freak out, non-freak out problem that over time, I think, is what's causing aging. 
Right. So the Sirtuins are going, they're like the first responders. They go and they, they sense the damage, they go and fix the damage. But over, you know, if I'm paraphrasing what you're saying, over the course of time, you know, the more the Sirtuin has to leave its, you know, silencing post, A, the likelihood of it finding its way back is going to, is going to attenuate. And B, the, I think the Sirtuins over time, they just get let is it that we get they get less active over time or it's both it, it, it's, both. it's, a, it's a disaster for us uh we have we make less of them we uh, have less activators in our body mm-hmm. some molecules uh like we'll call we'll talk about nad is yes mining mm-hmm. and uh and then they get lost as well these first responders don't always go back to their homes and that's uh that's not a good thing and what are some of the changes that sirtuins tether themselves to? Is it uh, so? D- you've talked about you know chromosomal breaks and DNA breaks. Are there other environmental stressors that they that they detect? They they detect pretty much everything. So in a yeast cell, we discovered uh, we had a, a really nice paper uh, in two thousand three that showed that they respond to everything that was known at the time to make a yeast cell live longer. Uh, so heat, uh, lack of amino acids. And uh, of course, sugar restriction, that's what we call caloric restriction in a yeast cell. But of course, you know, raising our bodies up another 20% in temperature is not going to be good for us. So the types of things, things that sirtuins respond to in a positive way are exercise and being hungry, probably some cold and some, some, uh, some sauna-like temperatures. Mm-hmm. Um, but those things are good because they're turning on sirtuins without distracting them. But it's the DNA break that we found is the most problematic. Uh, what else distracts them uh, in, a, in a damaging way? We, we actually don't know. Uh, what Our research has led us to the DNA break being a really problematic issue, and it's probably the main one. But there's, there's other things, I think. You know, if I were to guess becoming extremely obese and then losing that weight rapidly, because whenever cells have to respond rapidly, like a DNA break, I think that's what disrupts these loops and the and these bundles in a way that's non-reversible. Yeah. What I think is so interesting, you described the yeast cells uh, in your book. You talked about mice, um, that these sirtuins are conserved across many life forms. And I think in the book, I think you'd said yeast cells, they have there's five in the sirtuin, there's five sirtuins. Humans have Seven. Seven. And do you know offhand how many years yeast and humans are separated by in the evolutionary, you know, picture? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's about a billion. <laughs> like that's that's incredible that there's like that 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 ancient pathway has been conserved across you know so many uh, so many life forms. Yeah. Yeah. They're all, they're all around us in the trees in the bacteria. Right. Oh, yeah. That's right. 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 You talked about the trees in California. Yeah. 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 And and so that I think this is one of the first circuits of survival that evolved Mm -hmm. uh, in life. And we still. It's amazing that we still have it, and it's so important for us um, every day. And and that's another reason for writing the book is that there's something really profound about what we're working on here. Mm So let's parse this with a dive into NAD and uh, and its precursors, because you know the next obvious thing is well, how do the sirtuins do what they're doing? Um, and you've talked about both you know uh, accelerators of sirtuin activity and uh, substrates. So let's talk. Let's start first with NAD and its precursors, and then maybe we can dive into resveratrol as well if there's time. Sure. Yeah. Right. Um, so just before we do that, I, I think it's worth clarifying that because it can be a bit confusing that the sirtuins are protectors of, of our bodies, uh, but they can also cause aging by being distracted too much. Yes. The, what I mean by that is that the, the pathway to health is not to create a lot of problems for the sirtuins, but it's to, to trick them into thinking that times are tough and that they should be boosted. And uh, so we call this hormesis. Whatever doesn't kill you uh, makes you stronger and longer lived. And so what we're looking for are things in our daily life that, that fool the body into thinking that times are going to be really bad. Mm-hmm. So that's why being a little bit hungry, not eating a ton of, of uh, branched-chain amino acids from, from meat and uh, exercising, losing your breath are the, are the kind of things that the sirtuins will be boosted by but not totally distracted or, or uh, otherwise uh, 
um, switched off by. Mm-hmm. We've um, we've figured the be- out the begrudgingly we- cold shower, <laughs> right? You know, making yeah, yourself I, I, uncomfortable every day. <laughs> it is. It's all about being uncomfortable. Our, our bodies would much rather sit in a chair and eat popcorn. Right? There's a whole industry based on that. Yes. But really, what we we've learned through tr- some trial and error as a society, but also research on organisms ranging from yeast to worms to flies to mice and now humans, we've realized that uh, that's the worst thing you can do because you're, you're making your body complacent. You're turning off your body's defenses against diseases and aging. Mm-hmm. And it's not surprising that people who run and who are thin live longer than those who don't and who are fat. And it's not because fat is bad for you. It's because fat will turn off your body's defenses. And that's mm-hmm. the breakthrough that we've had over the last few years in studying aging itself. Um, and so when I, when I get it, go to the gym and, I, and I, when I try to skip breakfast and hopefully lunch, I'm acutely aware that what I'm doing is turning on my body's defenses and that makes it much easier to do. It doesn't feel great. You know, hunger is not something that's that pleasurable and nor is being out of breath. But we have to do it if we want our bodies to, to turn on these longevity genes. That's like cellular grit though. That's like cell, you know, that's the perseverance that you're sort of, that you're sort of going that. after that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, mm. did you just think of that? I did, yeah. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Great market. It is. It's, it's yours, it's really, you can have it. <laughs> really yeah. And uh and over time your body just gets used to to having a good life. And instead of putting its efforts into surviving, it puts its efforts into growing and reproducing and making more fat and storing mm. things up for for when times get tough. And unfortunately in today's society, times really never get tough. We have to right. actively Mm-hmm. Uh, make our bodies do tough things. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, so so we're, our lifestyle is killing us, and and we're now we know why. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging. Well, I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. So what, what about these activators? How do you, if you don't want to run a marathon every day and if you're too sick to be on a treadmill, what are you going to do? And not only that, how do you augment a healthy lifestyle with molecules? And what we've realized is that there are a couple of ways to do it. One is to boot to boost up a, the levels of a molecule that we naturally make called NAD that the sirtuin enzymes need for activity. And the other is to ingest molecules that plants make to survive. Uh, and one of those that's become famous uh, is resveratrol that's from grapes and found in red wine in small quantities. And those are the two ways, and they work by different mechanisms. Uh, Resveratrol is the accelerator pedal for these enzymes, and NAD is the gas or the petrol, the fuel. Mm -hmm. And when we add both, sirtuins work even better. And so that's why uh, I've been on taking resveratrol and NAD boosters uh, for many years now because the science points to them being uh, additive in in the body. NAD is interesting. we learned about this in biology in high school and probably fell asleep because it's the most completely, important. Completely. Compl- I, I was, it's never important. It was just part of the TCA cycle and whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It was the worst. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and probably a lot of people stopped being interested in biology because of NAD. Mm-hmm. But the good news is actually that we, we've now realized that NAD isn't just part of biochemistry and the TCA cycle. It's actually important for survival as well. And the body through the sirtuins is sensing uh, the levels of NAD. And so levels of NAD will go up in an animal. And I think we've shown in humans now that when you exercise, when you're hungry, it goes up. 
And those are signals to the sirtuins that times are going to be tough. And so by taking an NAD precursor that like I do and my father does, uh, my wife, my, our pets, um, mm-hmm. we don't think it's unsafe because this, this is a natural molecule that we make anyway, when, especially when we're young and we're fit. Uh, we think that we're going to trick the body into thinking that times are tough and that we're young again and stabilize the epigenome and repair DNA in a way that I used to when I was, when I was 20. I'm now 50. And uh, actually, you might be wondering how much does NAD decline between 20 and 50 years of age? Yeah. And at least based on skin samples, it's about 50% decline. Wow. Which is horrible if it's true. That's crazy. Um, yeah. Yeah. But it's pretty easy to boost up levels in, in people. We've done clinical trials now and others have done the same. And uh, doubling NAD levels is actually not that hard. One dose is not going to help, but over the matter over about a week or two, uh, those levels go up. I haven't tested myself, though. I haven't uh, been uh, doing that. But, but in studies of dozens of people, it looks like the mouse results are pretty clear. And when sirtuins have more NAD, they're, they're doing a better job of stabilizing the epigenome and keeping cells' identity correct, and also having the energy to repair DNA as well and find their way back home. Right. And NAD is made... Um, de novo in the cells. Like you can't just eat NAD. You can't just, you know, I mean, you can get, I guess you can get nicotinic acid and nicotine, you know, from plants and, and yeah, so I wouldn't, animals. I wouldn't but. take high doses of nicotinamide. That's a form that people have been taking. And the reason is we discovered back in 2002 that nicotinamide will do the opposite of NAD. It will inhibit the sirtuins. Right. And uh, so I avoid high doses of nicotinamide. Nicotinic acid is not so bad. It will raise NAD, not as well as these other molecules, uh, but it's also very good for cholesterol. So some people take high doses, as, as I'm sure you know. Mm-hmm. But these other molecules that, that are uh, looking promising are called nicotinamide riboside and nicotinamide mononucleotide. And they're just um, the immediate precursor and the one step back from that. And uh, they, they're fancy names, but they're just simple molecules that consist of sugar and phosphate. Not a big mm-hmm. deal. But the cell will take those up and, uh, and make NAD out of them. Now, there, there's a real, really big food fight in uh, academia right now uh, because the stakes are so low. And uh, the, there are some people who have vested interests. They have companies that sell supplements. I don't have any, any supplements. By the way, if anybody Googles my name and sees a, my name on, affiliated with a company, it's uh, it's not true. You are People associated with no one right now. Zero. Yeah. Okay. I licensed one of my inventions to a company, but I had nothing to do with that, and I, I have nothing to gain financially. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we can talk about conflicts later, but more importantly, uh, you can get these molecules online right now, um, and there's a big discussion uh, about which is better. And here's the truth: nobody knows. Nobody's done a head-to-head study. Mm-hmm. Um, in a mouse, let alone a human. So it's all based on conjecture at this point. Now, here's what I I know from having seen clinical trials and a lot of studies, some of which are published, some of which are not. Um, The NR and NMN will both raise NAD levels in people. Uh, They can both get into certain types of cells. And even if they're not taken up directly, they are processed in a way that leads to NAD going up, uh, which is ultimately what we want. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't see any evidence that one is markedly better than the other or that one doesn't get into the brain and the other does. Now, NAD itself is interesting. We used to think that NAD didn't get into cells ever, but it does get into some cells. It gets into neurons, for example, nerve cells. Hmm. And actually, there, there's a growing number of doctors um, and people I hear from that are uh, delivering NAD directly into the body through injection, IVs and into the vein or the muscle, yeah. uh, with anec- at least anecdotal uh, evidence that this is promising. Now, you know, NAD is is just a form of vitamin B3. It can be broken down and reassembled inside the cell. Um, it's got more components than, vit- than vitamin B3, like this phosphate group. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, I think it's quite feasible that NAD that's injected is either taken up or it's broken down and then taken up and reassembled inside the cell. Um, so 
you know, I think this argument that you have to take NR, you have to take it sublingual, or you have to eat it. I think all of these routes are likely to, to raise NAD in the body quite effectively. In your book, you, you talk about, uh, I think it was, you know, your lab student was like, David, we have a problem. And you were sort of bracing yourself for the worst. And what ended up happening was, I think the mice were, I think they were 20 months old, like they were older mice. So they were, you know, the equivalent of, let's say, a 60 or 65-year-old human. And they were running so much on the treadmill that they actually broke, the, <laughs> they broke the treadmills that you had set out for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, what's happening there? Like, is that cardio? Like, what? What is the? What are the changes that you, that you're? And I, they were on an NMN. I think they were uh, so yeah. nicotinamide mononucleotide, which is we refer to that as NMN. Um, that's what they were. That's what their substrate was. So, can you explain what what happened there? What do you think? What do you think happened there? Uh yeah, yeah. So we, we worked on this for many years. So I, I think it's it's more than what we think. We really have strong evidence of what's going on. And if anyone wants to look this up in detail, we published it in the journal Cell last year. Okay, so I'll make sure that we link to that in the show notes. Yeah, what we found was that the sirtuin called number one, sirt one, mm-hmm. is really important for sensing exercise, not just in the muscle, we've known that for many years, but also in the lining of the blood vessels within that muscle. Mm. And when... When you exercise, you have a protein called BEGF that tells blood vessels to grow. We all know that if you lift weights and especially if you run, you'll get more blood flow in your muscle. It's also true for the brain, by the way, and loss of blood flow in the brain is a large cause of dementia, of which we have nothing to treat, really, Um, certainly not to grow blood vessels safely. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what we found was happening in in the mice was that the NMN was tricking the cell into thinking it was exercise. And it was now responding to those, uh, those signals from the muscle and building new blood vessels, even in the absence of exercise. And what was happening in those old mice was that their, the blood vessels were basically just not getting the right signals so that they lost blood flow, which is a major cause of morbidity in, in the body and disease. And it was shocking to me that nobody had figured this out before because it's so important. And so through a lot of experiments where we made mice that had more CERT1 in their blood vessels or knocked it out so they had less and showed that those mice were either fitter or less fit. And doing that in the context of NMN, we are pretty sure that what's happening is that those cells, uh, when in a normal mouse, what would happen is you run, you have low oxygen, the blood vessels get the signal to build more blood vessels over the next uh, week or so. And we could mimic that with NMN. And the good news is that if we combined NMN with exercise, it made the mice even fitter. They could go through through endurance. They could run on the treadmill for up to twice as long as their uh, untreated counterparts. Mm -hmm. But the the message here is it's not sufficient to just pop a pill, probably. We still haven't proven this in people, though we hope to next year. But it's also not an excuse just to sit around and pop a pill, that getting off the chair, running a bit, uh, will will be the the best combination based on those mouse studies, and then the NMN can act as a potential amplifier to some of those benefits or NR, what you know, whichever. Yeah, yeah and yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, so the the disease that we'd like to treat next year is called Friedrich's ataxia, mm-hmm. which uh, patients suffer from low energy um, and I think low blood flow, and we'd like to use NMN as a, a way to not NMN but a, but a molecule like NMN that's we think even better than NMN that um, will help those patients. But ultimately, if we can get a drug on the market, then doctors can try it in clinical trials and, and it's probably going to be a very safe molecule. So it can be tested on a variety of things. I'm sure if we ever get there, athletes might try this as well, but that's a, that's a whole different story. Yeah. Yeah. That is a whole different story in terms of does that consist, like, does that, you know, is that doping? Is that something that's, you know, going to amplify their performance that would be outside the, you know, the, the stated norms. Um, let's talk about resveratrol for a moment. Uh, you had published a very famous paper uh, back in uh, it was 2006 uh, in Nature around the life-extending benefits of uh, resveratrol. And I think in the context of, you know, kind of going back to the sirtuins, you know, we were, you know, we've been talking about NMN and NR and, you know, as, as being uh, precursors for NAD, which is this endogenous substrate for sirtuin activity. Resveratrol is also an activator of sirtuin. So walk walk me through the 
I know that the paper was taken by the wine industry and they just ran with it. But let's let's talk about the let's talk about the paper and the implications for uh, resveratrol and molecules uh, like it. Yeah, well, we we didn't study red wine. We we came about it through a, a different route, and we were studying yeast actually, and we're also studying the human enzyme in in test tubes, mm-hmm. and we were trying to figure out uh, out of thousands of molecules which ones might activate the enzyme, and you know, obviously we, we were thinking in those days, as we still are, that you can't genetically modify a human easily, um, ethically. It's much easier if you can take a, a, a safe supplement or a molecule or a drug. Mm. And so with Conrad Howitz, my collaborator, uh, we looked at many molecules and found a, a set of about 20 different molecules, most of them from plants in the class of what's called polyphenols that were apparently activating this enzyme in the test tube. And we spent about six months trying to, to prove that wrong because it was quite an unexpected thing to be able to activate CERT1 by more than 10 times activity. And it, you know, it's when, when you discover something that crazy, you've got to try your best to disprove it because a lot of people are going to come after you, uh, scientists are that way. But nevertheless, we couldn't disprove it, so we published that resveratrol activates CERT1 quite effectively. When you put it on to yeast cells, they live longer, and that requires the sirtuin gene that it was targeting. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so we put that out there, and that got a lot of attention. But then the really big paper was three years later where we showed that mice could be tricked into believing that they were calorie-restricted, that they were on a lean diet, even though they were eating a Western fatty diet. And the mice were still fat, but their organs were beautiful and clean, and their the physiology and their molecular biology was telling us that they were actually as healthy as the the lean ones. So was that AMP kinase activation, mTOR activation? Uh, It was AMP kinase activation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we didn't look at TOR, so it may also be involved, Mm -hmm. but definitely AMPK. And then um, we looked at their lifespan and they lived just as long as the the healthy ones. Now, a lot of people have moved on and, and forgotten that that was the first safe molecule to effectively mimic fasting. Then there was this uh, disagreement about how resveratrol is actually activating CERT1. And it was a question, you know, again, uh, scientists like to do this. But, you know, I like to joke that scientists fight because the stakes are so low. In mm-hmm. this case, my technology was licensed to, to GlaxoSmithKline, which at the time was the number two pharma company in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had a patent, they had a patent that they licensed that blocked anyone else activating sirtuins. Uh, and then so Pfizer got into it and said, well, that mechanism is wrong and the patent is invalid. Uh, and that was a, a big food fight for a number of years. Uh, and I was sandwiched in between the number one and number two pharmaceutical company in the world. Um, and, you know, the media went went crazy on this too. We, we had raised the the sales of red wine by 30%. So we've got a lot of attention for that. But then it's also interesting that what if it's wrong? Wouldn't that be an amazing scandal? Uh, And so after many years of research that's actually still continuing in my lab, uh, we we came back and proved that we were right through some really hard and and I think really important work that we published in the journal Science in 2013. And then we have some crystal structures and we now understand very great detail how resveratrol works to activate the enzyme. Um, We also, by the way, we haven't published this yet, but we've made a mouse that doesn't get activated by resveratrol just by changing one amino acid in the protein. And that mouse is not responding to resveratrol. It doesn't live longer when you give it the molecule. So that, you know, that that's as good a proof as yeah, yeah, that's very mind. elegant. I love that. And that's sort of, you know, putting the nail in the coffin around the the activation capabilities of resveratrol and its life extending yeah. uh, capacity. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, now I'm talking a lot more about resveratrol because um, that's all behind us, fortunately. I'd love to have those drugs go back into those uh, human studies. We actually had activators that were a thousand times more active than resveratrol and they went into patients and we've published that, or Jim Kruger in New York published that those molecules, one of them at least, works in psoriasis in patients. Hmm. And, uh, you know, these, these molecules are anti-inflammatory. CERT1 is an anti-inflammatory molecule. 
And so, yeah, those molecules right now sit on the shelf at GlaxoSmithKline, and I'd love to restart those trials because I think they have huge, there's a huge opportunity not just to treat inflammatory disorders, but really any age-related disease. Mm-hmm. Let's, uh, let's go one layer deeper in the epigenome. Let's talk about the, so we've talked about sirtuins, we've talked about the ways that they can be activated. Uh, I would love to, uh, you, you go into great detail in terms of the Horvath clock and the, um, and the DNA uh, methylome. So let's, let's walk us through what those, what those are and, um, and what we know about them. So one of the big developments in the aging field recently has been the ability to measure age accurately. Uh, up until recently, we, we took blood tests and looked at biomarkers. And there's a company that, that I work with, invested a tiny amount of money into in full disclosure, called Inside Tracker, and they've been measuring my blood for the last 11 years. Hmm. Until recently, that was the only thing you could do. You could measure telomeres, but those aren't super accurate either. Telomeres, um, your listeners probably know, are the ends of chromosomes that shorten like over the time. shoelace cap at the end of the, yep, yeah. of the chromosome. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, those are aglets. Uh, <laughs> I knew they had a name. Uh, <laughs> But, but now we have what we call the epigenetic clock, or also known as the Horvath clock, mm-hmm. named after my uh, good friend Steve Horvath at UCLA. And what that is, is it actually it measures the methyl groups that are on the cytosines in, in the DNA molecule in our genomes. And what Steve uh, figured out and others, um, that these certain sites where you get these chemicals change very predictably over people's lifespan. And by reading... A few hundred of these sites, of course, there's, there's tens of thousands across the genome, but by reading very particular ones that seem to be susceptible to change during aging and using machine learning algorithms, we can predict very accurately how old someone is biologically. And that's not so much related to birthday candles. It's more about how you've lived your life. 20% of your age will be genetic and 80% will be how you've lived and epigenetic effects mm-hmm. on this clock. So that's great. So that means now we can, first of all, we can use this to test interventions, molecules, drugs on mice uh, and accurately say that doesn't just look like an old mouse or a a healthy mouse. It actually is younger or older. And we can also do it to test, use it to test in clinical trials, whether something's working. Instead of waiting 20 years for people to die off, uh, it's much easier. Mm -hmm. And actually, we saw Steve Horvath and Greg Fahey recently publish a a really interesting but preliminary study of a treatment that seemed to take two years, roughly two years off people's biological age. And is this where the backup copy lives? So we, you know, is this the, is this the, you know, where we see the original blueprint? Is that where it's, is, is it sort of hiding in this deeper layer? I love it. I love it. Let, let's go deeper here. Uh, we can go as deep as you want, uh, but this is, this is really interesting. So those methyls that accumulate, we have a new paper that is also under review at Nature that we posted online. It's on BioArchive, and uh, you can anyone in the world can download that. What we've discovered is that there seems to be a backup copy of the epigenome that can reset the DNA methylation clock and allow cells to play the piano the way they did when they were young. So. By by the CD analogy that you brought up, it's polishing the CD so now you can read the the right songs. Mm -hmm. And uh, we used Yamanaka factors to do that. These are the genes that reprogram skin cells and other cells to become pluripotent stem cells. Uh, These are very early uh, transcription factors that come on as we are developing in in the womb that tell cells what to become. And it turns out they're very good at resetting the age of cells back to zero. But what we've used them for, and I also want to give a shout out to Juan Carlos Belmonte at the Salk Institute, who put out a paper in 2016 that that showed that this might be true in mice. In our paper, we use these Yamanaka factors to reset the age of a mouse. And we focused on the eye, actually, because we we were really curious, can you make nerves regrow as though they were very young again? Mm-hmm. And so we crushed uh, some nerves and we also looked at old mice and also mice that we gave glaucoma damage to, glaucoma pressure in the eye. And in all those, all those three experiments, those mice were able to regrow their nerves and get 
um, their function of their retina back again. And in the case of the glaucoma and the old mice, uh, they got their vision back. Um, and in the case of the old mice, it was perfect vision back again. Um, and so that was quite a remarkable thing. And we also were, were able to take out the nerve cells of the, of the eye and measure their age. And they were younger. And then we could measure which genes were on and off. Were they really playing the concerto con correctly? Mm -hmm. And they were. What was remarkable about that finding is that if you look at genes that go down a little bit in the eye with age, they went up a little bit with reprogramming, with the reset. And those genes that went down a lot with aging went up a lot with reprogramming. So it was, it's not just kind of a reset. It was a, it was a near perfect reset of, of the genes and how they switched on and off. And that raises the question, where is the backup copy mm -hmm. of the cell? That's the big question. That's the Nobel Prize uh, for someone who can figure that out. Now, we know that you need enzymes that remove the methyls for this to work. They're called TET enzymes. And if we knock out or lower the levels of the TET enzymes in the eye, you don't get vision back in the mice. But that's probably not the whole thing. Actually, I'm certain it's not the whole story. What's directing those TET enzymes to the right place to remove the right methyls? We don't know yet. There's got to be a storage of information that directs that program. What we call the observer, actually, Claude Shannon, who in basically invented information theory yes, of communication, yes, yes, yes. called this thing the observer. We call it a backup hard drive or a repository of the information. This is how the internet works, actually, is if your email or your photo doesn't come through, there's a backup copy of that somewhere in the internet that then uh, restores the information. We think the same is true for ourselves. But we don't know if it's a modification on the DNA. We don't know if it's a particular protein that marks a, a, a site on the genome when we're young that then it is a flag to say, hey, I'm, I'm youthful, keep me, but get rid of these other problems. We're looking hard, I have about 10, but I think that's right now the biggest question in biology. And you can tell you can tell which methyl groups. So if you're if you're kind of going into you know when we're talking about cellular re reprogramming and using the you know the Yamanaka, I know you're packaging the Yamanaka Yamanaka genes in these little you know adenoviruses. Mm -hmm. You can tell which methyl groups are part of the, uh, I guess would be the 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 transmitter or like the original blueprint versus the ones that have that have accrued over time. Yes, and we have to we, first we have to build the clock, which we did. Mm -hmm. uh, you take samples of either your blood or people's blood, or in our case, um, parts of a mouse, and you can build up that clock. So you see which ones are there when they're very young and which ones are there or which have changed in the old. And then you build that clock. You need about, I think we used about 30 mice of different ages, train the clock using um, machine learning. Mm -hmm. And then we go back to the experiment. Well, actually, there's a, mid there's a middle thing, which is you then you take mice that you don't know the age of. And if your clock is good, it should be able to predict those ages. And, and that's how you know your clock is true. Mm -hmm. And then you go to the eye. What we did was took the eye and then we, uh, we took samples before and after the treatment um, in different mice. And we could see that after the treatment without adenovirus reprogramming, mm -hmm. uh, they were younger based on those particular sites. And it's very easy to do that nowadays. We can uh, do it just in, in a matter of a day. What you're doing is you're using a DNA sequencer to read where those chemical changes are. Eventually, it'll be only a few dollars to do the whole genome. Uh, it's one of the technologies we're working on. And so you could do it in a blood test or even in a device at home one day. And at least like, you know, my, my brain goes to, you know, that is so exciting. I mean, obviously the vain woman in me is like, well, you know, when my wrinkles are here and my collagen is lost and I have no more bone density and facial fat, like that's really, that's really exciting for me to be able to possibly express a younger phenotype of myself, even though my chronological age has, has progressed. But I, I think about at least in the short term, it would be interesting to see if, you know, the, these deeper clocks, if they, you know, some of the things that you know, we've talked about fasting mimetics and caloric restriction and, you know, uh, uh, hormetic stressors. It would be interesting to see whether those things, the, the amplitude of the benefit 
you know, because I'm constantly trying to clean up my epigenetic. I'm trying to constantly keep it as clean as I can, but I will fast. Let's say I fast once a month uh, for, you know, two to three days, um, or I'll do like a daily, I do every day, sort of a time-restricted eating regimen. But I wonder, is the three-day fast as good as, you know, if I were to fast you know, for 24 hours, once every week, you know, it, it can tell me the difference in terms of which are providing, you know, the amplitude of, of like, yeah. which one is better? Uh, well, we don't know. We really yeah. don't know. What, what, what we know is it's all better than nothing. And we know that right. calorie restriction works. So eating small amounts each day also mm-hmm. slows down aging, at least the appearance of aging. But we're at a point where people like yourself and, and myself and you know, some of our good friends are trying to figure this out. And there will be trials that will be done. If I were to make a prediction, I would say that three days is better than one. There's uh, chaperone-mediated autophagy, which is the deep clean, which doesn't come on in great amounts until you get to about day three. Mm-hmm. Um, I say that uh, with some sadness because I've never been able to go for more than a day. Mm-hmm. Um, I should try. Uh, you know, I'm not a perfect human being, but I would love to go for three days. And I think a week is even better. But of course, we're not talking malnutrition or starvation here. Uh, we're just talking about getting the body to clean out the misfolded proteins. Yeah. But yeah, I'm I'm envious uh, that you can do that. Yeah, I do it. I usually, I mean, obviously being a woman, I, I I typically time it around my menstrual cycle when I know my estrogen and my testosterone are low. So first couple of days of my cycles when I, when it's easiest for me to do that. I know this is a bit of a random question, and I just want to be respectful of your time because I know that you um, you need to. Uh, we need to be tying this up shortly. Are you uh, a comic book person? Have you ever watched Avengers? By any chance? Well, I have three kids, so I I know a lot about the Avengers. Okay, so I I when I when I was preparing for this interview, I was like, wouldn't it be funny to have another Endgame sequel? Because we have you know Thanos, you know Thanos, who's the big you know we're going to reduce the population by fifty percent. Everyone is so gluttonous and we need to you know remove them and then it's sort of like thanos versus david sinclair who's trying to increase uh-huh. our <laughs> increase our lifespan from you know let's call it 80 or 90 right now to 150 or or beyond i thought that might be a fun uh, fun thought yeah, I, yeah i'd be up for that uh <laughs> i've always wanted to be a superhero uh, yeah what, what i don't know is how to bring bring people back from the dead but i think we're getting close to being able to keep people alive in, in a healthy way for much longer. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that would be a great one. We don't have too many scientist superheroes. No, we need more. We definitely need more. Um, yeah, just in wrapping up, I just uh, wanted to say it's been just such a privilege uh, to sit down with you, someone who is you know at the forefront of aging and the information that you and your lab has brought forward over the last you know several decades. Thank you so much for spending time with me today and sharing your wisdom and your experience. It is very, very much appreciated. Uh, well, thanks, Stephanie. You, you, you've gone to a deeper level that, than most, and I hope that uh, your listeners appreciate it. Um, I certainly did. Uh, there's a lot of detail. Um, some readers of my book uh, want to jump to the cheat sheet, so I want to just say uh, page 303 is where I list what I do and my father does. He's 80 oh, okay. and still running around like a young kid. But if you want to learn more about what's behind all of our research and where we're going and what the world could look like and what your life could look like. That's all in the book too. Wonderful. And if I, so I'm going to link obviously to the book in our show notes. Is there anywhere else that I can, if people want to learn more about you, uh, they want to find you on social or, you know, your work, where can I direct people? Uh, Well, so I'm on social media and I talk about everything from what I do and new science that's just come out. I, mm-hmm. I read papers, the first thing that I do when I wake up. So that's David A. Sinclair on Twitter. Um, it's David Sinclair PhD on Instagram. Uh, and the website for the book, um, and there's information on there, including a newsletter that folks can sign up for, is uh, called lifespanbook.com. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time, David. It was really, truly a pleasure. Uh, yeah, likewise. I really, really enjoyed it. And uh, and you're obviously well-read and knowledgeable. So yeah, keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. 
You can find all this information at our website, bettershow.co. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-S-H-O-W dot C-O. Maybe the simplest way to keep in touch with me is to sign up for my email. When you go to bettershow.co, there'll be a little pop-up and I send a weekly email on all things mindset, nutrition, fitness, uh, longevity, aging, things that are capturing my attention that week in a newsletter that we call Brain Candy. You can find me on social, on Twitter, it's Dr. underscore Stephanie. On Instagram, I am Dr. Stephanie Estima. That's S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E. E-S-T-I-M-A. And finally, a legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only and the advice, discussions, and recommendations that we discuss on this podcast do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare professional's advice or care. There is no doctor-patient relationship that has been established in the consumption of this podcast, and the use and implementation of the information contained here are at the sole discretion of the listener. The content in this podcast is not intended to be used as a substitute for any professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment.